Uh, you're playing that thing real good in there, Nick. Mike, George, why George? Bad things are happening in England. <laughs> Only in England. I'm just looking at the little news flash we just received here. Yeah, I'll tell you, it just, it's, it's happening all over the world. I just, before we get started here, this week is beginning. It's as if the animals are revolting. It's just happening everywhere. And, and uh, listen to this. England, for heaven's sakes. Hepburn, England. Brian Lumsden who is in England, I suppose, is determined to stop the thief who was repeatedly struck at his beloved front flower garden. He has linked 14 rose bushes. And you think uh, you think that uh, the rip-off thing is a big deal in America. Listen to this one. He has linked 14 rose bushes to a burglar alarm system that sets a light flashing and a bell ringing in his house at the slightest tug. They keep stealing his rose bushes. Remember, that's what the whole point is. He said... Uh, that uh, I have not... I'll tell you one thing, though. I, I must admit that... Uh, he, I, may I quote him? He says, we've tried it out, and it's foolproof. I don't know whether it worked. That's two weeks old. I don't know whether he's still got his roses. Although I might say, any guy that makes a public uh, statement like that, that he's just linked all his rose bushes with a burglar alarm, is giving a direct challenge to anybody who wants to steal rose bushes. It's just like Mount Everest. If Mount Everest was a little short, fat mountain, nobody'd try to climb it. They simply wouldn't. And uh, even when questioned, uh, why didn't they climb Mount Everest? They said, because it's nothing. Be the probable answer. So don't announce. I'll, I, I think I might have told. What's going on in this? There's a lot of action in there, fellas. It's okay? It's all right. I'm glad to see that. I just hope nothing's broken, you know. You never know. We're uh, this great big electrical machine here. It, uh, may, may, uh, you know, maybe you don't, don't know that, uh, that the radio station to which you are listening is one of the very few wind-up radio stations. Now, most others, you know, use electricity and, and uh, they plug them in. But this is a wind-up station, and it has a great big spring. And uh, every couple of hours, three or four engineers get out there and wind it up, and it works pretty good. You know, like those wind-up razors and stuff, it works pretty good. So although once in a while you may notice we fade a little bit, that's just before wind-up time. So, uh, you, you've just wound it up, Nick? Okay, hello, hello. Oh, we're getting a lot of power now. Yeah, hello. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nicholas. Hey, uh, we have another thing here. I want you to listen to this a minute now, Nick. This, I may tell you this. Nick, uh, have you ever perpetrated a crime? Now, come on. I, I won't tell you, old man. Just, just, have you ever perpetrated a crime? I won't tell him whether. Okay. Glad to know that you've joined the club. I, I doubt whether Jerry has. Jerry's just got that look of an eagle, Scott. There's no way. Uh, no, I just tell certain kinds. And there's us. Now, uh, reading about that rosebush thing, uh, the guy stealing the rosebushes, I'm reminded of a crime that I once perpetrated, and I still, to this day, feel sad about it. You know, have you? Do you have any conscience at all about any of the bad things you've done? Yes. 
I think that's the sign of a civilized man. That the more civilized a man is, the more conscience he has. And, uh, you know, you, you take the, you know, the, the slope-browed Neanderthal. He goes out and clubs somebody in the back of the neck. You don't think he comes back and, and, and fetches about it and weeps, you know, for weeks. He sits in the cave and, and the cries about what he did to Og. Not at all. Not at all. What he does is cut off a big chunk off of the ribs. Uh, sometimes even the short hock of uh, Og and have, roasts it and has it for dinner, you know, with a few potatoes and maybe a slab of dinosaur meat. But uh, we, we, uh, we civilized people, right? We civilized people have a conscience. <laughs> and uh, it can be a hell of a thing. I, I, I'm reading about this Rosebush thing, and I'll tell you how I read about it. I, I, I just didn't bring this clipping in uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to bother you or to fill in time. Don't think for one minute, because we're dealing with something important here. When a man has to put a burglar alarm system on his rose bushes. Somehow, that is a direct refutation of the whole concept of beauty. I mean, you know, the English are always writing these little folk songs like, I have a fairy in my garden. You've heard these things. Well, you can't, in the next line, say, It's wired up for all burglar proof. No one will steal my sun dial, and my little roses are safe tonight. You know, sung with a lady that sings wearing a velvet dress. No, this just is not. I hate to hear this. I just don't like it. And I must say that I'm the kind of person that made it endemic, made it basically, uh, he had to do it because of the type I am. Because I'll tell you, when I read that piece, and I'll tell you where I was sitting when I read it, if you're curious, I was sitting in a cab in Times Square. And I'm looking around Times Square, see... And I see all these marquees of all these porny movies going on there, you know, and everything is, the sun is beaming down and all these porny houses are going full swing. There's nothing, there's nothing more uh, curiously unsettling than to see a crowd of pasty-faced individuals scuttling into a porny house at 2.30 in the afternoon in the brilliant sunshine. I mean, <laughs> somehow that should be late at night. Do you agree? But the, nevertheless, uh, I see this, and I'm sitting in there looking out, and I, uh, you know how I am, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm given to naval examining, and so I'm sitting there saying, ah, yet, yet indeed, quoth the bard, what fools these mortals be. Well, then I did an awful thing. See, I looked down. Oh, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say this. I looked down on the Florida cab. I'm just sitting there, see, thinking about how evil mankind is. And I looked down the Florida cab. Now, you've all ridden in the cabs from time to time. I presume all my fellow victims out here of the 20th century have been in a cab. You've been in the clutches of the meter, all right? You find your life ticking away with them ticks, tick, tick, tick. And, boy, your lifeblood is squirting out, and that little meter's going away. And uh, you've all been there. Well, if you've never ridden in a New York cab, you have never ridden in squalor. That, uh, the one thing that uh, a New York cab has over all the other cabs, it's a little moving slum. It, uh, it is. It's a little, uh, little tiny microcosm of a city dump on wheels. And so I'm sitting there looking down at the floor, and I'm ankle deep in cigar butts and old Yoo-Hoo cans. And, oh, you know, it's a real. And the, uh, the driver, this, ca this cab was so dirty, so cruddy, that the, the windows were clouded over with a film of, of this yellowish, brownish effluvia 
which gathers on the windows of New York City cabs. And apparently it had not been cleaned since the cab was new, which was probably two years ago. And I might say that in New York City cab terms, that's roughly, oh, the late 1860s with a normal car, wouldn't you say? I mean, uh, two years on 6th Avenue, uh, up and down, 24 hours. You know, the average cab is turned off. The key, the key. Did you know this? The average cab is turned off where the car just sits, not used. Roughly two hours and ten minutes a day. Now, this I found from reading a very interesting treatise on the cab business. And it goes all the rest of the time. That means 22 hours straight. That cab goes seven days a week. Hopping from pothole to pothole. Now, New York City, I, I believe, has the greatest potholes. In fact, I'm thinking of uh, publishing a guide to uh, picturesque potholes of Gotham so that people from other cities can come and look at our potholes, you know, and they'd be taken on a tour of the potholes. Because we've got some that are pretty nearly as interesting as the Grand Canyon. Uh, there's one out in Fordham Road, for example, that three people were lost in it Two weeks ago alone, they sent down teams of mule drivers not looking for them, but too bad, forget it. It is believed that some of them end up somewhere near China. However, uh, as a cab, I don't know why I'm doing this, as a cab here in Fun City, a cab two years old is, a, is an elderly cab, this, this uh, very elderly. So I'm sitting there with these, with all this stuff around me. By the way, I noticed the torn up paper in the bottom of the cab. Uh, I just saw this last week. It's torn up and it says Mets win pennant. So you can see when the last uh, day that this uh, cab floor was cleaned. When did the Mets win the pennant, Nick? 69? Right. What is this, 71? Right. So I'm sitting there knee-deep in all this stuff. And what do I see? Down there amid all the cigar butts and the beer cans. Another unmentioned, well, there were some real unmentions. What do I see down there? I knew the scene. I knew what happened. Some guy said, now, how many times have you pulled up in front of a place and you're talking to somebody with you and you haven't uh, made preparations before you got up there and the guy pulled up and traffic's all around, horns are whack, whack, whack. You know, the guy said, come on, let's go back. I ain't got all day. The cab driver, come on, it'll be a dollar seventy-five on a meter and a two-dollar tip. That'll be seven dollars. Well, you know, the typical cab scene here in New York. So what do you do? You start fumbling in your pocket, you pull out your wallet, and, you know, the cab is all cramped in the back, and you got a coat on, and you're pulling out the money and all that stuff. Oh, I can see what happened. The $10 bill floated to the floor like a dying autumn leaf, unnoticed, unsung. Now, the question is, oh, what do you do? That was the sound of my conscience clunking. What do you do? Well, now, up ahead of me was sitting the cab driver. You could see this toad-like neck sitting up there, and uh, his cab was so dirty that he had taken a rag and he had wiped one little round spot in front of his face. It looked like the periscope out of a out of a submarine, you know, where he could see the rest of the street. And the rest of the cab was filthy, dirty. I'm sitting there and somebody, you know, like, oh, terrible stuff had gone on in the back seat of that cab. And uh, I'm sitting there with the stuff up around my ankles. I reached down and I, 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 at first I thought it was an ad or something. I thought it was, you know, it was one of these little things like a fake $10 bill says, bring this to uh, the Whoopi store and you'll get a free package of Dingmobiles or something. See, so I reached down there. I pick up, it is a 10 spot. A 10 spot. 
Now, the question is, as I'm sitting there amid all the pornies, the guys crowding in and out in the sun, does a, does a 20th century man, uh, does he turn, tap the cab driver on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, I found this $10 bill in the back seat here. What does he do? Well, I, I'll tell you, I did what everybody does. No, we pulled up in front of the place. The guy says, that'll be $1.75, uh, $2 a tip, it'll be $6. I said, here, all I got is a 10. Well, I handed him the 10, and he got purple. And uh, with that, uh, you know, we, a lot of argument. I wound up going in the cigar store in New York. You know, if, you, if, you're trying to, if you're trying to cash anything bigger than a 50-cent piece in a cab, you wind up going into the drugstore, getting change for the guy. He'll ask you, hey, bring me out some coffee. Uh, make it uh, light, no sugar, will you now, okay, Mac? You bring him coffee. Oh, yeah, how about some cheese Danish? You bring him the cheese Danish, and uh, then you come in and you give him all his stuff. You hand him the you hand him the dough for a you know a cab ride, which has been six seven blocks, cost you maybe eight nine dollars. You give him the you give him the uh, money, and he's waiting for the tip. See, and you hand him a tip. That means a two dollar tip. You give him the tip, and then he gives you bad luck. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, just uh, that's the guttural sound, which has to do with all kinds of uh, connotations. I don't even want to get into that which means you have not only failed to tip him well, he doesn't like the look on your face. Furthermore, you took him to the part of the town he doesn't like to go to. It is a, you, have to, you, have to, you have to really be very nice to a cab driver, you know, make sure you don't want to take him to some place that he doesn't like, you know, an old girlfriend living in that neighborhood or something he might have, some bad scene. This is, speaking of bad scene, this is W.O.R. New York. Hi, George. Yes, I have here a, uh, a letter here I've just received from one of our victims up in Vermont. And he says, Shepard, I want to thank you. You have opened up my life completely. I am now loved in the neighborhood. There are women chasing me. I've uh, been able to uh, uh, grow more hair on the top of my head, all because of that fantastic flying bird. He says, that thing not only flies, but I am flying now. So if you would like to try this, friends, you just send $3.98 to Flying Birds. Flying Birds, Department S., Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, and the zip is 10017. Now, that's $3.98 per each, check or money order. The address, again, is Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, zip 10017. <laughs> yes, uh, this letter, by the way, is tear-stained. And it was obviously written in a great hurry. He's on his way to Mexico with a chick. All as a result of his fantastic flying bird. Oh, declassified. Okay, now listen. Uh, in answer to a lot of uh, letters that have arrived here, uh, asking about it, I don't know. I don't know quite what to say, but uh, I'll just lay it out for what it's worth. I do have a new LP out, and a lot of people have written me, and, and one guy in particular said that he heard about it and he wanted to know all the story. So here is the story. It's a new LP. It's the first LP I've turned out since, oh, 1963 or 4, when I turned out a few on, on another label. And this is called The Declassified Gene Shepherd. Uh, and it's uh, subtitled, uh, The Public Has a Right to Know. And by God, they do. Absolutely. And it's in stereo. You put this thing on your stereo, and on one side you can hear me playing a Jews harp, and on the other side hitting my head, and on the middle side I'm dancing a jig. So that's the declassified Gene Shepherd, and it is on Mercury. You can get it in any record shop. I know for a fact that uh, Sam Goody 
uh, has just reordered. And uh, In fact, any major record shop, I don't want to plug anyone particular, uh, you'll find them at Abraham and Strauss. Wherever you buy records, you tell them you want Mercury, number SRM, SRM, this is a serial number, SRM1-615, the declassified Gene Shepard. The public has a right to know. Say, I just learned something about wine. Great Western has a kicky set of booklets called A Little Something. Each one tells you a little something about their great wines, and you get them free from your local wine merchant. This one says, The driest or least sweet kind of champagne has B-R-U-T, brut, on the label. For those who prefer something less dry, Great Western has a variety of other New York State champagnes. Special Reserve, Extra Dry, Pink and Sparkling Burgundy. Whichever champagne you like best, you're always safe with Great Western, the great champagne to drink and to give. Try one. You'll see why they're called great. Great Western wine And you thought we only made great champagne Great Western, made by the Pleasant Valley Wine Company, Hammondsport, New York. So anyway, uh, I don't know why I'm burdening you with this, uh, but the, I'm sitting back there, and I, you know, here it is. I walk out, and somehow my whole day was made. I found a $10 bill. Yeah. Yeah, look back over your life now and, and those golden moments when you have found something in your life. You know, totally unexpected. You don't expect to find anything. You just find something. It's a fantastic moment. It, it, for weeks, for months, you're walking around feeling groovy, you know, like maybe it has turned the corner. <laughs> and everything's going to start to work from here on in. That's a good omen, see? Well, I... I uh, I, I remember the the first moment this ever happened to me in my life. Two two fantastic moments that uh, that occurred to me where I found something, and I remember specifically finding something totally unexpected. Was we were at this fair once, a big fair, you know, like a county fair or something. You know, millions of people there, and uh, I was a little kid. I was about five or six, a little, little kid. And you know, you remember something like this. It's a real traumatic experience. This is not nostalgia, friends. I'm not talking about nostalgia. I'm talking about that moment of unexpected total good fortune. And so, and, and it could give you a false idea of what life is about. You know, if it happens to you, too, you know, if it happens to you too soon, you're liable to think that's the way life should be. And all the rest of your life, you're liable to be walking around wondering how come you landed with this bunch of finks. Nothing's happening. So, uh, nevertheless, I'm a kid, and we're we're walking through this this thing, this this long, like a like a uh, a midway, you know. Uh, and how they have on affairs where the Ferris wheels and all this stuff, and there's guys having pitch games and everything. A little kid, I remember all the lights. It was at night. And we're out in front walking along this, all through all these places. Once in a while, my old man would stop, you know, have somebody try to guess his weight. And he always got mad because he always did. You know, he'd walk along, ah, it's a phony, it's a phony. The guy probably has a scale under the wheel there. And we'd walking along doing all this stuff. And I'm getting tired. And uh, my kid brother's whining, and he's getting tired. It's about 11 o'clock at night. You know, the thing's getting to the tail end. And I'm sort of trailing the crowd. And we come to this place where they had a big wheel. It's a big wheel, you know, the kind that spins around, great big wheel. A lot of people were, were playing this wheel, and they had pandas and all that jazz in the back there. And he gave prizes away, apparently, that were like mystery prizes, not only did you win a panda, but you got a mystery prize or something. I didn't even know what the game was, but there was a kid that worked for this place. And he had a little bonfire, and he was burning 
like waste paper. A great big pile of stuff, all piled up, and he's burning it, you know, he's tending this thing, and I'm walking along. Well, among other things that he's burning, he's burning a whole bunch of little square cardboard boxes, apparently that some kind of prize had come in, that they had taken the prize out, and they were burning the boxes. There were, must have been a hundred of them, all looked alike. A lot of little boxes. They were these little cheap cardboard boxes, the kind that you see on a Japanese toy or something that are clipped together, and he's burning them. And I remember it had on the outside of the box a picture of a tiger. And it was a, just, a, you know, like a little label, something made in Japan or something. Well, I picked up one of these boxes out of the pile. And I just walked along with it, and I had this little box. Well, I must have walked about a half an hour with this thing. And then we sat down on a bench. My mother said, let's let the kids rest a little bit. You know, we'll sit down, we'll get them an ice cream cone. So I'm sitting there with the ice cream cone. My kid brother's with the ice cream cone, and I've got this box. Now, I've been carrying this thing for about a half an hour. That's what added to the drama. So now I'm sitting at the bench there, and I opened the box. Just opened it up, you know. I just looked at it, and it was light. There was nothing in it. I could feel it. It was just light, and you know, I opened it up. Folded neatly. A brand spanking new $5 bill in the box. What a shot! I mean, I took this thing out and I said, five dollar. Well, I was a kid about six or something. You know, I never owned a five dollar bill in my life. It's a five dollar bill. I said, look, and I pull this out. Well, instantly my old man sees this. He says, what's that? A five spot. Where'd you get the five spot? So I got it in the box. What box? Well, box I found back there someplace. They're burning them, man. Pile them, they're burning them. So you find a $5 bill in the box. Yeah. Here, you better let me take care of that so you don't lose it. And uh, he did. He took care of it. And uh, from that day on, <laughs> he really did. I never saw it again, I might point out. Well, you know, he knew what would happen. I'd squander it, you know, on taffy apples. He squandered it on Blatt's beer, but uh, that was important beer. So uh, for, for weeks after that, months after that, there was always a legend at the time Jeannie found the $5 bills. <laughs> and and uh, once in a great while, it even comes up even today. Like, you know, I'll talk to my mother on the phone. She said, you remember the time you found the $5 bill? I said, yeah, Mom, I do. Dad took care of it for me, so I wouldn't lose it. She said, yes, he was afraid you'd lose it. And of course, we never pursue it any further. We just leave that there. Because you don't want to carry old rancors out. So this this moment today, find, you know, finding this ten dollar bill was a fantastic moment in my life. I just I didn't need the ten particularly, you know, but finding a ten dollar bill kind of makes everything worthwhile. You know, <laughs> it, it really does. So I'm sitting there in the cab. I found a ten dollar bill, and you know, I'm I got the world by the you know what. You know, I'm feeling groovy. So I'm sitting back and oh wow, and uh, the cab driver's driving away along. We go through the pointy belt there. And uh, there was an old newspaper. There were many old newspapers in this cab, but there was an old newspaper laying beside me. I pick it up, you know, I'm trying to look casual. After you find a $10 bill in the guy's cab, you don't want to sit there looking nervous, you know, holding it up to the light to make sure it's got threads in it or something, you know. Now, who, who's, uh, whose picture's on the 10 spot, you know? How's that for a piece of trivia? It ain't so trivial. Huh? Uh, well, that's pretty close. It is not Buffalo Bill. That's a nice try. Miller W. Fillmore? Uh-huh. Try again. Who's on a 10? That's good. There you go. Yes, sir. That's right. Al Jefferson. 
It's not a ten there, and uh, and if you get if you get a ten dollar bill, it's got somebody else on it. You're in trouble. I mean, you better be careful about passing it. But nevertheless, I get this ten, you know, and I'm sitting there and I, uh, to, to kind of make uh, make it look like I'm part of a casual world, I pick up this this paper and I start to read it. See, <laughs> that's an old paper, and the first thing that hits me was this lousy story about the rose bushes. Kicks me right in the face. Now, at that point, I'm feeling very righteous, you know. Look at look at all those guys going in those bad movies and all that today. And I feel very righteous, and I read that Rosebush story. Oh, no. And once again, I have been tossed back into the to the great fishbowl of the, of the debauched. I'm one of the true evil people. I'm going to tell you what I did. And I, I you know, you, you feel a great urge. You do. You know, uh, uh, detectives have noted this. It's, it's, it's appeared in fiction from time to time. The male factor has an insensate, deep subterranean desire to confess his crime. Always. Now, he may not go right back to the place where he hit the guy in the head and tell him, hey, you know, I hit the guy in the head here the other day. Not at all. He'll tell somebody ultimately. You know, this is a fact, Nick. He will ultimately tell some, or he will make an action. Whatever criminal, whatever guy that's perpetrated a real bad thing, he will do something ultimately that will let people know he did it. That's a fact. Now, why nobody quite knows? Who knows? You know. But I'm going to tell you. This is I'm going to just. This is my uh, act of contrition. And I'm going to tell you, and I want you to listen to this, and I want you to listen to this, Nick, because you you might do something like this some night yourself, and I just don't want you to be led down the primrose path because it. It can bug the hell out of you for years afterwards. One night, I was about 15. Now, it doesn't matter when you commit a crime. You can be 100. And when you commit the crime, it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with age, time, or place. You have committed an outrage against your fellow man. And when you have done this, there's some little mechanism that goes on inside of you that begins to, I don't know, it begins to kind of, uh, it does one of two things. Either you go totally straight after that because of the terrible stuff that it did to you, or you become like Dylan. You say, well, what the hell? I mean, one robbery, all right, so what difference? One, I'll make the 150, you know? One murder, 50, it doesn't matter. You know, once you've done one, you do the other. So man will go one or the other way. So I suspect that the most saintly men that you ever meet in your lives have, have once done something. And this is why they become very saintly. And, of course, you meet the, the hardened criminal. He has done something once in his life, and he became a hardened criminal. In other words, he go one or the other way. The guy who is just sort of the ordinary walking around reader's digest reader, he's probably never done anything. I envy people who have never done anything in their lives, you know. Who, who, I don't know whether I envy them or not. They, they, uh, they don't know that, that wild thrill of, uh, of the totally illicit. But, uh, uh, you know, you pay for it ultimately. But me and Schwartz and Flick and Broner, and this happened, I'm 15. We had built a treehouse. You ever build a cave-like or something like that? Well, we had built a treehouse. So that was an experiment in our neighborhood because we ran generally to caves. Uh, we, had, we had made many a cave. And, uh, in fact, even after the treehouse was torn down, by irate natives in the neighborhood, uh, we uh, went back to caves. 
But, uh, you know, this is much safer. It's easier to make a cave, too. So we had built a treehouse. Now, one of the things we wanted to do in a treehouse was to stay in a treehouse overnight. Everybody's got a secret desire to sleep in a tree overnight. I don't know why. This appears in literature many times, too. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here trying to argue behavioral psychology with you. I'm just trying to tell you what it is, you know. So here we are. We're up in our treehouse this night, right? Me and Schwartz are very uncomfortable. This treehouse was uh, probably four feet square. Well, if you can imagine four kids spending the night in the treehouse, it was pretty rough. And it was uh, kind of uh, itchy and cold, but it was groovy. We're in the treehouse. See, we have a candle, which we have lit. And we're squatting around a candle, and we have brought each of us a sandwich, which we have made at home. We're going to eat the sandwich, and we're going to stay in the treehouse overnight. We had a ladder that went right down from the treehouse, went down to the ground. We're sitting there around a hole where the ladder came up. When Flick said, you know what would be really good? And everybody says, what? As you see, once you're you're in a treehouse late at night, you tend to think bad stuff. I mean, I, I could go on and on, but we're sitting there. And Flick says, uh, you know what would really be good? And Schwartz says, what? He says, why don't we make... Hunter's stew. Well, Hunter's stew is something you always hear about in Boy Scout manuals. How to make Hunter's stew? Have you ever heard of it? Hunter's stew is supposed to be made by hunters. What what you do is you go out and you you know you shoot a rabbit or something, or, or catch a some kind of an animal, and you make Hunter's stew, and it's made out of vegetables. You cut up this animal, and you put them in there, and you 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 it somehow it sounds like really outdoors. I mean, this is what Dan Beard does. You know, really. Really with it, Boy Scouts and all that stuff. He says, we ought to make Hunter's stew. Well, Schwartz said, Hunter's stew? Where, where are we going to get, you know, an animal? Flick says, well, look, we don't have to get an animal. I can go. So, by the way, the, this this uh, house was about 75 feet from Flick's house. It was in the vacant lot back of his house. He says, I can sneak in the back. And he says, I can steal a, a can of Spam. Now, we can we don't have no animal. If we can have some spam, we'll make hunters do it. So Flick says, wait a minute, I'll be right back. And he disappears into the darkness. Well, he reappears about 30 seconds later, and he's got a pot, which he had taken out of the kitchen. And he also has a can of spam. Well, then, Bruner asked the next question. He says, what do you do with it? What do you, you just, how do you make hunters do it just with a spam? What about vegetables? Yeah, vegetables. Got to get some vegetables. Like that, I, I must say, I, 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 I hate to say that I was. Well, don't don't make it sound like I was innocent. I was I was as bad as the next in that crowd. I said, listen. I said, listen. Have you gone? You know that? How about that field over there by George Rogers Clark? Well, there was a school about a mile and a half from us, out on the edge of town. And on the, all around that school, there were, there were gardens where people lived. They had gardens. You ever lived in an area where people grew corn and stuff? I said, how about let's go out by George Rogers Clark. We can steal some corn and stuff. Flick says, yeah. Well, about eight and a half milliseconds later, we are skulking through the alleys, invisible. We are skulking along through the dark on our way to these gardens. Well, we arrived at the first one. Now, it's easy to steal corn because the corn 
is very high. You know, it's about eight feet high. All you got to do is dart across the road, and you're in the corner, and nobody's going to see you. Well, we, we stole about five or ten ears of corn. Just corn. And now we had it in a gunny sack. We stole, and this is where it really gets bad, we stole some onions, the green onions, which were growing in a green field. And we just, you know how green onions grow, the little onions with the green stalks? We were crawling on the ground, pulling up onions, just like that. And then we did the worst thing that I think I've ever, I've ever actually personally been involved in. Worst, not, I've done worse things, I suppose, if you look at it in a hard, concrete way. But this, somehow, somehow there's something, it has an added dimension of evil. Fleck said in the darkness, what are them plants over there? It was a whole patch, long lines of light green plants that were roughly, oh, I'd say, two feet to two and a half feet high with very light green leaves, kind of serrated green leaves. Schwartz said, I don't know. Fleck said, let's see what they got on them. So we crawled through the dark, and now we're laying in the and the rows with these plants above us. And about a hundred feet away, you could see the house. And there was a light in the kitchen. This poor guy that was growing all this stuff. Flick says, there's nothing on him. There's just leaves. Schwartz says, what do you mean no guy's going to grow no plants just for leaves? There's got to be something on him. Pull one up. With that, he pulls one up and hanging on it were about five little balls just hanging on the bottom of it. George said, these little balls, what are these things? Plexus, give me one, I'll look at it. And he pulls it off and he bites it. He says, hey, they're potatoes. George says, potatoes? He says, yeah, potatoes. I didn't know potatoes grew like this. He says, yeah, they're little potatoes. And so we crawled through this guy's garden. He had about ten rows of these things. And I want to tell you what we did. Jeez, it was terrible. We dragged our gunny sack behind us. And we pulled up each plant and removed all the potatoes and replanted them. We replanted them. Somehow, it instead of just taking four or five of these things, it got us hooked. We loved pulling them up and pulling the balls off because each one you pulled up, you didn't know how many would be on it. It was like fishing or something. It was exciting. Some of them were big. Some of them were little. And so we went from one end of that garden to the other. We pulled off every baby potato off his plants. Filled the gunny sack and crawled back out on the road. We crawled along this ditch with the corn, with the, with the onions, and with those beautiful little baby potatoes. They were tiny. They were no bigger than a jawbreaker. They were beautiful little things. They were like miniature potatoes. Never saw those before. Because, you know, you're used to seeing potatoes. These are baby potatoes. We crawled back down the ditch, and ten minutes later... We are squatting in our little treehouse with a, with a pot. We have taken all these potatoes and we've cleaned them off with our handkerchiefs. You know, we didn't have any water, so we cleaned them off with our handkerchiefs. And here's these little potatoes. We had a pot full of little potatoes, 
We busted up the onions in there. We broke up the corn. Just broke the corn. It's this big pot, see? And so Flick takes out his scout knife and chops up the spam. Chop the spam up. We put it all in the thing. And we got a pot full of stuff. And Schwartz says, we can't start it up here. We're going to have a fire here. We can't put a fire in a tree house. Nobody thought of that. <laughs> Flick says, yeah, let's go down on the ground. So we crawl. Everything is in, the, in whispers when you live in a tree house. You don't sit and talk. I might point out, if you've never lived in a treehouse, it militates against normal speaking tones, especially when you've been stealing corn and junk. So we crawled down our ladder with our pot. We get down on the ground. Flick rushes in the house. He brings out some matches and some papers. And five minutes later, we got a little fire going. And we're squatting around the fire, cooking up Hunter's stew made out of Spam. We just cooked it, and we cooked it. Well, now, I might point out, too, another thing. I guess this goes along with crime. Once one has sinned, one is beset by an unbelievable impatience. Guy steals $500,000 from the bank. You don't think he saves it for 20 years. And then goes out and gradually spends it on clothes at Barney's. Like hell. He steals $500,000. Ten minutes later, he's down at Hialeah. And he's squirting around, yelling and hollering. He's got a blonde on each knee. Why? Impatience. That's what's the basis of crime. Impatience. You want to get it all now. Well, we got the pot cooking there. Well, you know, how long do you think it takes to cook Hunter's stew? Have you ever thought about how long it takes to boil under a bad fire? How long it takes to cook corn and potatoes and all that stuff? Probably six hours. <laughs> about six hours. Well, we, we hadn't cooked this maybe five minutes. You know, we had water on top of it. We hadn't cooked it five minutes, ten minutes, maybe 20 minutes when Flick says, come on, I'm getting hungry. I don't, I don't want to mess around. Says, it's done, right? It's done. So we, we, we each had our, our scout cup, and we filled it up with what we had cooked. Well, all it was was lukewarm. Well, now, when you have stolen something, you do not ever admit that you're not enjoying the fruits of your, your labor. Believe me. I can just, there's no way that a guy who has stolen $500,000 and he's sitting down in Hialeah with a blonde who turns to his friend Greasy Thumb and says, you know, I'm not, this is not working, you know. Greasy Thumb, this ain't no fun. Why don't we go play checkers? No, you don't do it. So we sat around and we're eating this crummy hunter's stew. Eating the, eating the raw onions and we're eating raw potatoes. We ate raw potatoes for about three hours. We ate raw onions, we ate raw corn, and Spam. Washed it down with lukewarm water with salt in it, which we call soup. And then we crawled back up into our pad <laughs> and squatted around our candle until the sun came up. You don't sleep in a, in a tree house. We sat around, you know, telling dirty stories and stuff. And the next day... I went down, we're going down to school. We passed George Rogers Clark and we passed that field. And all those plants were glistening in the sun. And you know, ever since that time, I thought of the moment when that farmer, after six months of growing these plants, pulled up the plants and there were no potatoes on the bottom. What do you think he thought? I mean, because these plants continued to grow. You know, for weeks after that, I'd go past, and they were always green and nice. For some reason or other, pulling them up, 
pulling the potatoes off did not kill the plants. In fact, if anything, they flourished. The plants were big and luxurious, and I can imagine that poor guy watering them, thinking how groovy it's going to be to have these, and pulling them, what? No potatoes. He pulls up the next one, no potatoes. The next one, no potatoes. No potatoes. I wonder whether we wrote a letter to the state agricultural department saying that he has discovered a new strain of potato plant that does not bear potatoes. Or a new strain of virus has hit his potatoes and has destroyed the potato buds completely. <laughs> well, now, reading that story of that... Of, now, that, why in a cab... You see, you never get rid of your crime. Why in a cab, sitting in Times Square among all the porny movies, finding a $10 bill, thinking I'm on top of the world, do I read a piece that says a guy in England had to put a burglar alarm system on his rose bushes? Why? Because that's the way fate works. It works in indescribable ways. And as that great moving finger moves along, as it scrawls on the enormous blackboard of time, as we squat in the endless cabs of existence with the meters ticking away, ticking away our lifeblood, ticking away, ticking away, as we head towards that final destination where we better have a good tip ready. All the while, little slings and arrows are coming out of the clouds to remind us of our basic sin and evil. And so I say to you, friends, I want you out there tonight, next to your radio, wherever you might be, I want you down on your knees. I want you to put your hands on the top of that radio set right now. Do you feel that heat coming up through that radio set? Do you feel it coming into your knuckle bones? Do you feel it in your wrist bones? That's love. That is electronic love that I am sending out your way. And friends, I want you, as you pass that collection plate down from one to the other, I want you to put nothing but folding money in that plate. God does not believe in small change. Yes, I want you to straighten up, and I want you to look back over your sins. Yes, who in this great crowd of our time can cast the first stone? Or something. I wish I'd learned to play the violin. Might have changed everything. Instead of that, the Jews are... Instead of that, I go through my existence finding $10 bills amid the rubble of cabs, worrying about lost and gone stolen potatoes and disappointed farmers who stride across a rugged Grant Wood landscape Wondering of the mysteries of time and the universe. I'll bet even now, 150 years later, this farmer saying, You know, I'll never forget the time I planted potatoes, bought them seed potatoes down at Artem's feed store. Good number one guaranteed potatoes. And by God, I'll never believe it. I put, I put all the fertilizer I could lay on them things. They was growing good. In fact, by the end of the potato growing season, I had potato plants that were three and a half feet tall, and you never saw such leaves. By God, when I went to harvest them, there was nothing. Not one single potato on the bottom. Now, none of you guys are going to believe that. And there were no worms. That was, that was the one year we did not have worms in the neighborhood. What happened? No potatoes. So I'm going to tell you, friends, there's nothing you can count on. Nothing. All them guys in Washington come around here telling you how to plant stuff and grow stuff. They don't know nothing. I'll tell you, they can't understand that either. And so you must be careful, friends. We cast small pebbles into quiet ponds. But the waves, the ripples go on and on and on and on.
This is WOR New York. Now it comes with the news with John Scott.